Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> I, I don't know about you guys. I absolutely love the fact that we get like little surprises every week about who's going to show up and do our announcements. I don't know why I love that so much. I just do. Some, some of you guys, most of you guys know that, uh, that I teach uh, youth ministry and Christian education over at, uh, at Gateway Seminary. Um, this semester, as we've been going through our, our, our chapel services at the seminary, the pastor, uh, the, the president of the seminary, Jeff Orge, had decided that we were going to try to deal with some of the most difficult passages to interpret in the Bible. So, you know, a few weeks ago, we were talking about the sin that is without forgiveness, you know, that whole crazy thing. We talked about why Paul says that women shouldn't speak in church. I mean, lots of really difficult passages that we're sort of dealing with on that. The passage that I was assigned to preach on today is one of those passages. <laughs> Thank you so much, Pastor. <laughs> well, let's get right into it. We're in uh, 1 John, as we have been for some time, and we're in chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 13. That's 1 John chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 13. You know what? I brought my reading glasses today. You guys give me just a oh, pen doesn't help me. And we'll see how it goes. I can even see the little numbers when I do this. It's really awesome. 13. I have written these things to you that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what he has asked, what we have asked for him for. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask and God will give it to give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't bring death. There is sin that brings death. And I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin that does not bring death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Now, in a lot of ways, the passage that we're looking at is at least the beginning of John wrapping up his session. And it actually starts out pretty easy and pretty familiar to us since we've been studying 1 John for a while. That when he starts out, that, that he says, um, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is awesome news. What he's saying is for those of you who are in Christ, you no, I want you to know that you have eternal life, that your life is not going to be over when this body fails and when we end up uh, passing on from this life, that you're going to have eternal life. I want you to be confident that. Now, I don't think that John is only talking about the immediate passage when he says that, when he says he's writing to us these things, that I think what he's actually doing is summing up what he said in all of 1 John, that in a sense... The whole purpose of his writing has been to help us to know, to have confidence that we have eternal life, that we belong to him. And that his desire for us is not that we would wonder in terms of where we are, but that we would know 
that we belong to him, that we're his and that we have eternal life through him. Jesus told the disciples, um, I'm going now to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's his problem. problem that's, problem. that's his promise to the disciples. And it's his promise to us as well that he's returning to receive us to himself. Now, there are three ways in this passage. Actually, we have to back up one verse to sort of get to the beginning of it. But in verse 12, um, John says, he, he defines those who are in Christ as those who have the Son. The one who has the Son has life. Um, in, in verse 13, the one that we just read, it says, those who, um, uh, those who believe in the name of the Son of God, they have eternal life. And if we look down a little bit farther in the passage in verse 18, he says, everyone who has been born of God. And then he says, we're not even touched by Satan, which in, in some ways we're going to discover is, is similar to what he's saying about them having life before. Guys, these are not three different ideas. These aren't three different spiritual realities. That John is using different words, a different way of looking at this in three different ways. That those of us who have repented of our sins, turned away from serving ourselves and serving our sins, and turned to God and embraced Him as our King, that for those of us, we have the Son. That we have Him in our lives, that we have Him in our hearts, that we have Him that we, we have the Son of God. And then those same people who have the Son of God are those who have placed their confidence, their faith, their belief in the name of Jesus Christ. And those are the same people who have been born of God, who had this new birth that the Bible talks about, that John talks about in several places in his writings, that we have this sense of new birth. And because of who he has made us, because of what he's done, as we turn away from our sins and embrace him, we belong to him and we have life in him. Now, this becomes a fairly important concept because everything that John says as we go forward grows out of this same idea that because we belong to him, everything else that he talks about in this passage comes into fruition in our lives. So let me, let me kind of move ahead with this then and look at verse 14 and 15. Now, this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. <laughs> he hears us. Because we belong to him, God hears us. That's actually kind of a miraculous statement when you think about it. You know, I, I don't know about you guys. When I was a kid, you know, if, if I went up to my dad and asked him for something and he wasn't busy, he would turn and give me his attention, pay attention to what I was, what I was wanting, and then would talk about that. And he would give me the things that I needed if, if they seemed appropriate to him. You know, but if I caught my dad when he was on a phone call and tried to ask him a question, he didn't listen to me at all, you know. He, he just shushed me and moved me aside. Or, you know, if I caught him in the middle of the Dallas Cowboy football game, there was no way I was getting anything from him that he just pushed me aside and that was all there was going to be to it. That's not how God is. 
He hears his children. He hears us. This is an amazing thing. I was in India several years ago, and we went to this Hindu temple at one point. And when we were there, part of the the worship that they were doing was people were screaming at the top of their lungs, and they would take out pans and bang on pans with wooden spoons, trying to make as much noise. I mean, it was this huge ruckus. And the, uh, the, the missionary who I, was, who I was with turned to me and said, they're trying to wake up their God. From their perspective, if I want the God to hear me, I've got to make enough noise that they actually turn and pay attention to me. And my dad was kind of like that too. You know, I, that's the way we expect things to work. But that's not how it is with God. He hears us. Now, you guys have already noted that there's a caveat in this. It says that, John says that he hears us when we ask according to his will. I think you need to think about it this way. A little girl comes up to her daddy and says, Daddy, I'm hungry. What does daddy do? Well, if he's a good father, you know, goes and gets her something to eat because... He desires for his daughter to have the things that she needs to sustain life, to be healthy, to be good. So so he has the will for her to have something good to eat, and he gives that to her. But when his daughter comes up to him and says, Daddy, I really want to smoke. Could you give me a cigarette? Maybe he says, no, and don't you be smoking. Or maybe he just completely ignores his daughter and doesn't listen to her because it's not healthy. It's not good for her. It's not his will that his daughter pick up a habit that's going to wreak havoc in her life in terms of her physical health. He doesn't want that for his daughter, so he's not going to grant that to her. He's not even going to pay attention to that kind of a request. God hears us. But his desire is to give us things that are good, that produce spiritual health, that help us to walk closely with him, that are in keeping with the things that he wants for us, that help us to be a part of the growth and expansion of his kingdom. He gives us good things. And John goes on to say, not only does he hear us, but if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, We know that we have what we have asked for. This is an amazing thing. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what John's saying here. He's not promising us that everything that's going to happen, that everything that we pray for, that everything we ask God for, that he's automatically going to give that to us. What he is saying is that God delights in giving good things to his children. That God delights in providing great opportunities for his children to grow in their faith and to walk with him and to have the things in their life that are going to fill their lives with with him and with good things. I, um, when I first moved here, um, going to work the seminary, you would think they would like be making like really, really great amounts of money to go to the seminary. But actually, my salary was cut in half when I moved to California to come to work at the seminary. And I only really did that because, well, there's a few more caveats to that, but I only really did that because 
I believed it was what God had called me to do. So I was like, God, I'm just depending on you to be able to help me make it through this. Not only that, but the cost of housing was doubled. And at the time when I moved to California, we were right in the middle of that big housing bust. I don't know if you guys remember what I'm talking about. The property was devalued a great deal, which seemed like a great thing until you started trying to buy a house. And then you realized that every time you put in a bid on a house, that there were 85,000 bids on the same house within the same day. And that people were putting cash into houses so that if you were trying to borrow money for a house, that they just didn't even look at your, at your offer. And so over and over and over again, for several months, I was struggling to try to find a place to live. I thought I had, you know, I'd sold a house in Alabama. I thought I had enough money to be able to put a down payment on a house. It didn't even count for anything in this, in this housing market. I finally uh, found a house that was quite a ways away that looked like it was going to work made the offer, and then things just started shifting and changing in terms of the finance market. And what started out with me being just a little bit better than I needed to be in debt-to-income ratio ended up being a little bit less than I needed to be with debt-to-income ratio, and the deal fell apart. It, we actually were able to sort of redo all of the financing um, so that I could get into the house, and it took us three days longer to perform than we said we would in the contract, so they invalidated the contract. I didn't know where I was going to live. You know, I mean, I was like, God, I know that you called me here. Surely you don't mean for me to live forever in a one-room hotel <laughs> where I'm just, I'm just sort of renting week by week in order to have some place to live. Surely you're going to give me something. And so I started praying, God, could you, uh, it, it, it could be that I could just um, cash out my 401k and have enough cash to be able to actually be competitive in bidding. But that seemed like a really awful idea to me. And then I said, or I could um, just move far out in the desert, you know, and go find a place in Hemet or someplace that I could live. And, and it would take me a long ways to, to sort of drive in from there. Maybe I could do that. But that didn't seem like a great idea to me either. Or I can just, you know, rent an apartment and then just keep looking for a place. But my life seemed like it was up in the air as long as I didn't have a place to live. That seemed like an awful deal. And so I said, God, the only other thing that I can think of is if somebody who knows me could just sell me their house and not even put it on the market. That would be great. Then I, I, I prayed, God, do that for me. Just get somebody that I know to give me a house. And then I laughed out loud because I had just moved to California and I didn't know a soul <laughs> <clears throat> that day, I, uh, I had to have a place to live, and so I, I, I moved into a little apartment. And that night, I uh, uh, went to, to the church I was visiting at the time. And the, I really, I didn't want to. I mean, it's been all day moving. You know how that is, and you're like, ah, oh, do I really have to go to church today? <laughs> this is that. But, you know, the youth minister had bought me a ticket to this dinner they were having, so I was like, okay, I guess I better go. So I go to this dinner. I'm sorry, there is a point to this story. I'm just taking a long time to get to it. So I, I go to this dinner. And afterwards, the pastor says, so everything working out for your house? Well, I tell him the whole sordid story about how awful it's been to try to find a place to live and how this deal has fallen through and all this kind of stuff. And he says, you know, my dad has Alzheimer's and we're going to have to move him out of his condo. And if you want, we'll just sell it to you and won't even put it on the market. 
He asked me if I wanted to see it, and I said yes, but it didn't matter because when God answers an impossible prayer, how do you say, well, I don't know, let me think about that, you know? It was like, so I go, and, I, and, I, and the, the, honestly, the condo was not a place I would have even considered if God had given it to me when I first showed up here in California. But after seeing how long it had been and what a tremendous gift it was for him to give me this condo and to give it to me below market level, it was just sort of this amazing thing. I'd say all that just to say that God delights in giving good things to his children. Because of that, John moves on in verse 16 and says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask and God will give life to him. You see what he's saying? That if you see someone sin, pray for them and God will restore them. Why will he restore? Because it's within God's will and because it's what God has called us to do and because it's the way that we talk with our Father, that because we belong to Him, He hears us when we pray for our brother and sister. We don't tend to do that very well. The honest truth is, maybe this isn't true for you, but it's true for a lot of people and sometimes for me, that the truth is, is that a lot of times when we see people sin, that we use that as an opportunity for gossip or we use that as an opportunity to alienate other people, to push people away, or we just ignore what they're doing. That the idea that I would really get on my knees and call out to God for a brother or for a sister to be restored when I see them in sin is really meaning that I trust God, that I trust Him with the things that He's given to me, that I can turn to Him and that because I care about my brother and sister and because I know that God gives me good things, that I pray for Him. Yeah? Okay, but this is where this passage gets really sticky, right? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, that does not bring death. What? What do you mean does not bring death? He should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit a sin who doesn't bring death. He says it twice. There is a sin that brings death. I am not saying that he should pray for about that. What on earth is John talking about? Sin that does, I mean, is this like a Catholic idea of mortal sins and venial sins? I don't think so. I mean, John wasn't exactly a Catholic. So I, I, I don't think that that's what's going on here. That, that, that he talks about two kinds of sin, that the sin that brings death and the sin that doesn't bring death. What does he, what does he mean? Well, I, I got to tell you, this is a hard thing to interpret. And, and, and all kinds of, of commentators have wrestled with this. So I don't know that we're going to get to a clear and simple idea here, but there seem to be two ways that the Bible talks about death, at least in the New Testament. That one of the ways that the Bible talks about death is it talks about death as 
physical death. That is, when my body here ceases to function, I drop dead, I become, you know, just returning to dust, all of that kind of stuff, that the Bible uses that to talk about death. For, for example, when, uh, it, when John talks about the, uh, the death of Christ, he doesn't mean anything figurative about that. He means that Jesus was actually physically put to death. The Bible talks about death that way. Um, turn with me to, uh, uh, to Acts chapter 5. Now, we're early on in the church's history at this point. Listen to this story. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when he heard those words, Ananias dropped dead. And a great fear came on all those who heard it. I guess so. And the young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. Now, there was an interval of about three hours. I guess it takes a little while to dig a grave. There was an interval of about three hours, and then his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked him, her, asked her, did you sell the field for this price? And she said, yes, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out instantly. She dropped dead at his feet. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, I'm not sure what to make of all this, but if this is what John's talking about, then this passage could refer to physical death. Well, why would you not pray for someone who their sin had led to physical death? Well, because they were dead. <laughs> so there would be no need to pray for them to, uh, to, to, to come back around. You know, that, that if they experienced physical death as a result of their sin, they were dead, you can move on. Actually, if we approach it that way, this passage is kind of easy to understand. The problem is it doesn't seem to fit the context very well. That doesn't seem to be the way that John's talking about death. The other way that we could approach death, that the word is used, is to talk about spiritual death. That is a life without God that if it's not changed goes on for an eternity in a place called hell. That that, that, that sense of spiritual death means that a person is not necessarily sinning unto physical death, but their sin is leading to spiritual death. It may be similar to what Paul talks about in, uh, in uh, Romans 8. If you, get a, if you get a chance, if you don't mind, turn, turn over to, to Romans 8, and I'm going to look at, start looking at verse 5. Romans 8, cha chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh. 
But those who live according to the spirit about the things of the spirit for the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, since the spirit of God lives in you. Do, do you get what Paul's talking about here? That what he's saying is that when we set our minds, set our hearts, set our lives to be in Christ, to be set on the Spirit of God, that we have life, that it's not that we're waiting for eternal life, it's that God gives us His presence and with that, His sense of spiritual life immediately. But that if we don't, if we continue to live in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, then our lives are lives that are spiritually dead, that we have not, that we don't have the presence of God in us, that we don't get to walk with him, and that he doesn't receive us to himself at the end of this, this, this life. In, in 1 John, John is talking a lot about um, the false teachers that were standing against the gospel in the, uh, uh, in the time that he was writing, uh, towards the end of the, of the first century. And for John, these false teachers were people who had rejected the gospel and they had chosen to live a life of unrepentant sin, either because they were doing things that were invalidated. You know, there were some folks who said, look, this body doesn't matter, so I can do whatever I want to. In this life, it doesn't matter because only my spirit matters. False teaching. That's not the way the Bible teaches. So they were either living in that kind of unrepentant sin or the kind of unrepentant sin that tried to lead people to believe theological beliefs that were just wrong. That Jesus didn't actually die. That all of those things were, 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 were heresies that were happening at the time of, of Jesus. And, and so they were living in this lifestyle of unrepentance. Walking in sin instead of walking in Christ. Maybe what John means as he talks about this sin that's unto death. Maybe what he means is that those who choose to live a lifestyle that is opposed to God, that's not in Him, are living in a spiritual death that leads to an eternity of spiritual death. And, and maybe when he says we don't have to pray for them, maybe what he really means is we don't need to pray for their sin. We need to pray for their salvation because sin is only forgiven when someone embraces Christ. Maybe. Good enough? Let's move on. So, verse 17. John says, All righteousness is sin, 
and there is sin that does not bring death. Now, why does he say that? I, I think what John is saying is he's done all this stuff about saying, okay, there's some sin that brings death. There's some sin that brings life. So maybe it sounds like that he's being soft on the sin that, doesn't, that brings life. You know, that he's saying, okay, that's not that big a deal. John is saying, no, anything you do that's unrighteous, anything that you do, the, the ESV translates this as wrongdoing, anything that you do that's wrong is opposed to God and it's not something that the, the, John's saying we need to take sin seriously. Not just the big sins, but the little sins as well. We need to take sin seriously. And even though our sin may not lead to death, that all of our sin is serious before God. Hmm. Moving on. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, and the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. This is such an interesting verse. There's so many things going on with this. He says that everyone who's been born of God does not sin. Now, <laughs> my Greek is not all that great, but uh, Danny Aiken's commentary, he says that the way that, that, that the HCSB here translates this is probably the best literal translation of this verse. That, they, that the person who, um, uh, who's been born of God does not sin. That would seem to mean that if anybody ever sins, that they don't belong to God. Well, Aiken says that this, this word can actually have the inference of something that continues over time. And he says that the best way to approach this is to translate it like the ESV does, even though it's not the most literal translation, that it probably actually is what John had in mind. And it certainly is what he had in mind in other places in the gospel, that those who are born of God do not continue to live a lifestyle of perpetual sin. Uh, John Stott said that, uh, that a lifestyle of sin is completely incompatible with a lifestyle of someone who follows Christ. That we might meet from time to time, but that we can never take up residence with each other. That there's this sense in which if I belong to Christ, that I have to be living in an attitude, in an, in a, in a, in an intention of turning away from sin, of, of looking to God and asking for his forgiveness for sin and walking away from my sin towards God that I can't continue to live in a lifestyle of unrepentant, oops, of unrepentant sin. <sighs> then he goes on to say that the one who is born of God keeps him. <laughs> now, who is the born of God, the one that's begotten of God, I think is the way that King James says it. You know, I think we're talking about Jesus here. That seems clear that, that he's talking about Jesus as the one who is born of God and that he keeps the one who believes. That even though we're facing our own issues of sin, that John says, Jesus keeps us. He keeps our salvation. That is, that that's assured. And he provides escape from sin so that we're not caught in perpetual lifestyle of sin, that Jesus keeps us both in this life and in the life to come. And then he says, and the devil does not touch him. 
the literal word here is touch. You know, John says he's, he doesn't touch him, but he doesn't mean he touches him. Some of the commentaries say that it means something like he doesn't touch him enough to harm him. In other words, this is not saying that the, that the, that, that the enemy, the devil, ever has, uh, never has an opportunity to try to tempt us or to try to lead us astray or to try to deceive us. Certainly, the Bible is very clear that he does those kinds of things but he doesn't have the eschatological ability, the, the, the long-term ability, the, the eternal ability to keep us from God. That he can't touch us in a way that moves us away from God. That when we belong to Jesus, that, 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 that Jesus keeps us even from the power of Satan. One more verse. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Once again, Paul calls us to the knowledge that we belong to Jesus, that we belong to God, that if we've turned away from our sins, if we've embraced him by faith, that we belong to him. And he says the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. One of the commentaries that I read described it this way. He said, it's like the world is peacefully sleeping in the arms of the devil. That they're blissfully unconcerned about the fact that their lives are leading them to an eternal death. That they've avoided the issue to the point that they are willing to live in a pattern of unrepentant sin and not worry about the consequences because they are resting in the arms of the evil one. The one who distracts them, the one who lies to them, the one who tempts them, the one who leads them to death. John really only gives us two choices. That either we're living a life that's given over to Jesus Christ, that acknowledges him as king, that knows that we're adopted as his children, that he hears us. Either we're living that kind of life or we're living life in the arms of Satan where we're blissfully unaware that our lives have no value and no meaning and no purpose and the end thereof leads to death really doesn't give us other options. So what does all this mean for us? When I was in college, um, there was a man named T.W. Hunt that came to OBU, to Oklahoma Baptist University, where I was studying, and did a, 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 a seminar on prayer. And I was just sort of blown away because... Hunt talked about prayer in ways that were so powerful, that were so much beyond anything that I had thought about to that time. And I started to realize that, that there was so much more to seeking God and to praying to God and to asking him for what, what, what he wants for my life, that there was so much more to that than I had ever thought. I didn't hear much about T.W. Hunt for several years, but... Uh, uh, a few years later, several years later, um, some friends of mine were at a conference in Glorieta, New Mexico. And T.W. Hunt came and, and taught on prayer for them again. You know, it's, he'd been doing that for 15, 20 years. 
And my friends were so moved by what he taught and what he said that they just kept going up to, to TW and just saying, Dr. Hunt, what, what on earth? How can we live this kind of life? How can we have prayer that focuses on that? And Hunt just continued to say, you've got to practice prayer. You've got to keep giving your life to God in prayer. At the end of that conference, T.W. Hunt met with my friends and told them, Steve, Marsha, I'm going to be praying for you and for your children. He said, oh, thank you. That's so nice. <laughs> and he said, no, you don't understand what I'm saying. I am going to be laboring in prayer, lifting you up to the Father day by day. It is difficult work, but I'm going to do that for you because I believe that God is moving in your hearts. My friend Marcia was telling me about this and, and she just got tears in her eyes as she taught, listened to a man that would pray for her that intentionally, that carefully. T.W. Hunt was one of those men that just walked with God walked with this, this sense of, 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 of intimacy with Him that I just aspire to have. Hunt died in, uh, in 2014 at the age of about 85. So we can't really answer our questions today, but I think I would ask the question, how did you become that man? How did you become that man who walked with God like that? I think if T.W. could, he'd tell us, the first thing is, is that I knew that my life belonged to Jesus. That I had confidence that I was His. I think he would tell us, I learned to ask boldly from my Father because I knew that He loved me. And I knew that he delighted to give me the things that would make a difference, not only in my life, but in the lives of those that I prayed for. I think he would tell us, I learned to take sin seriously in my own life, in the lives of other people, that I didn't dismiss it, but that I begged God to restore me and to restore those around me who had fallen into some area of sin. I want to be that kind of man. I thank God for the kind of man he was. And I would ask God to make you that kind of people as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are so many things in Scripture that sometimes are just hard for us to gather and hard for us to understand, but we hear you when you tell us that you love us and when we've turned away from sin and repented and come to you, that we belong to you, that you honor us, that you give us a sense of your grace and your peace, and that you answer our prayers and do things for us that's, that's miraculous. God, help us not to take sin lightly, but to get down on our knees about our own sin and about the sin of those that, we are, that are around us that we love to beg for your restoration. Help us to walk closely with you, to become a people that truly know you, that live for you. 
We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.